Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robertson and Paul Hodes, produced by WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire, and podcasting on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And today, for a special edition of Countdown to Election Off the Record, we are our own guests. Matt Robeson, welcome to Off the Record. Paul Hodes, welcome to Off the Record. Yeah, there is so much well, to talk about that uh, that we, we just couldn't help ourselves with trying to cover it all. Well, thank you. I really enjoy the show. I, I've listened to it before, and it's always I'm always honored to be a guest on a radio show. I, I like I like doing radio, but but so so listen. I know it may be just a trifle stale, but I, I've got to talk about just for a brief moment. Indulge me to talk about the vice presidential debate. Now I know that the debates uh, we could argue about whether they really matter or not, but that debate was you know there were some there's good news bad news about that debate. The debate happened. That's good news. Um, Kamala Harris walked a careful line with facial expressions and being tough without being disagreeable. Um, People are always talking about stereotypes. um, And she is a historic figure as the first black Indian uh, mixed race uh, vice presidential nominee oh yeah and she's a woman and then we had old white guy mike pence uh who was uh, kind of sleepwalking through the debate one of the pundits called him flaccid now that's a term that nobody nobody really likes to hear but this was uh he was called flaccid and he was smooth he was a liar uh and uh, it was a kind of unrestrained uncontrolled debate the moderator just let him uh, talk over her, just saying, uh, 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 thank you, Mr. Vice President. Thank you for what, Mr. Vice President? For talking over past your time? Thank you for what, Mr. Vice President? For nothing but lies? But look, in the end, in the end, there was a winner. And the winner of that debate was the fruit fly. The fruit fly perched on Mike Pence's head became the blow up of at least an hour on social media. Uh, it's not reverberating much past that, but, but man, oh man, was that fun. I got all kinds of memes like black flies matter. Uh, all flies matter. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Uh, there are no flies on me. Oh, wait, yes, there are. So in the end, you know, we could talk about who won, who lost, whether it matters. But then there's a question about whether or not, really, it was the fly who came out literally on top. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think the, there is an obvious historical significance to Kamala Harris's presence on the stage as the vice presidential candidate um, for a major American political party. She's a woman. She is of Indian descent. She is uh, of, of black descent. Um, and that is uh, meaningful. And, you know, I think it's, it's I, I don't think that there's a lot of evidence here 
at the end of the day that the debate qua the debate really matters, right? Uh, you know, we've seen that in seven of the last eight elections, the perceived winner in instant polls of the VP debate has gone on to be part of the winning ticket, but that can easily be a chicken and egg thing, right? I mean, it could just be reflecting which side is more enthused, which side is more engaged. There's actually no evidence that I've seen of VP debates or actually presidential debates actually changing the trajectory of a race in a, a meaningful and lasting way. Um, there are some examples of the VP pick sort of changing the meta narrative of a campaign, right? So we saw Sarah Palin in 2008 change, inject a, a note of energy into the McCain campaign and then race serious questions about his judgment in who he had selected. Uh, the selection of Al Gore in 1992 kind of cemented the uh, youthful new page uh, turned in the Democratic Party image that Bill Clinton was looking for. Um, but yes, I, I, I don't think that the debate, qua the debate, is really uh, likely to uh, matter much. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's sort of poignant that the most memorable thing from this, aside from the historical significance and the inspirational element of Kamala Harris being on that stage and really just doing such a, a strong job, the most memorable thing will probably be the fly. The fly. You know, for those of us of a certain age, that was one of the great movies that we grew up with, in which man turns to fly. I mean, you know, but uh, I especially, frankly, like the little meme showing the fly on the vice president's head with a Biden-Harris sticker stuck right in it. Well, let me, uh, let me just wax about one other thing about the debate. Now, I, I know that, that the vice president um, did not tell the truth, and I know that he talked over the moderator. Um, Kamala Harris, uh, on a couple of occasions, was able to say, I'm talking, Mr. Vice President, um, essentially, uh, you childish person, it's my turn. I get my time to speak. And she did it uh, with grace and with uh, force. Um, but let's, let me hypothesize that this debate between the vice president and the would-be vice president was actually some signal that the democratic process uh, was back on track, at least the conventional democratic process. Now, we could talk about, I suppose, whether debates matter and, and all that, but at least, at least it wasn't a you-know-what show. At least it wasn't just a shouting fest. Uh, we actually heard some discussion of issues, although, you know, from a partisan standpoint, I would argue that Vice President Pence was evasive to the max, but putting the partisanship aside, uh, I think there's a good argument that, that this showed that at least our conventional political process is still uh, possible. Yeah, I mean, I would push back a little bit to the extent that, I mean, look, as we're recording this, it's just emerged that President Trump has decided to forego participating in the second presidential debate, which the Commission on Presidential Debates had proposed as virtual only due to his COVID diagnosis. And the fact that he's in the midst of a campaign, which by all measurable uh, factors he is losing, and despite the fact that in theory, debates should present an opportunity 
one of the very few remaining to change the trajectory. The fact that he and his team have decided that it's really not worth it really says all one needs to know about how much these debates really matter. And, you know, the very fact that, as you pointed out, uh, Vice President Pence was able to emit a fire hose, a gusher of untruths in the course of the debate, and they were completely unchecked, really calls into question whether the whole enterprise is doing anything to elucidate the choice of the American people. And it just seems to me that the entire debate concept has sort of long been intellectually bankrupt. It has very little to do with how governing happens. I mean, I think back even to the uh, congressional debates that you participated in when you were a U.S. Senate candidate, the debates you participated in there, and contrast that with how you ran your congressional office and your job as a member of Congress. The skills that you show off delivering zingers and repeating talking points and pivoting back to your message in a debate have really nothing to do whatsoever with what it takes to govern effectively, to represent people effectively, um, and uh, to advance a policy agenda that serves the interests of the people who are voting for you. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of thought that both last week and this week were uh, another blow uh, on the side of let's end this entire debate enterprise once and for all. Well, I suppose you could argue that, you know, really all they are is entertainment. And really all they do is feed the politics as entertainment quotient for folks, which leads to a skepticism about politics, I suppose. On the other hand, uh, that the debate gave uh, a purportedly nonpartisan forum uh, to Kamala Harris to introduce herself in a way that um, a, a paid-for campaign event or a strictly partisan campaign event would not. So to the extent that at least uh, the debates are available to a national audience of all parties and all comers, uh, there is utility in, in, in a candidate uh, being able to introduce or reintroduce themselves, their thinking, and their personal style uh, to a broader audience. So I, I, I think that, look, I, nobody, nobody that I know of is happy with the content of the debates. Uh, they don't seem to be able to produce anything real or any real discussion uh, of any substance to, to the issues. So maybe uh, if, we, if we lower our expectations for what happens in debates, the debates will, 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 will be a lot better. And I mean, is there a better way to, to, to talk about the issues? I mean, maybe you just have to give uh, Kennedy uh, uninterrupted time without any of this idea of having a, quote, discussion, because the discussions just turn into childish arguments. But maybe if you gave the candidates opportunities, at least on the same stage, uh, that was nothing but uninterrupted time, uh, you, you'd get somewhere. But, you know, what candidates do is they try to show their strength or skill by either interrupting or not following the rules. So, it, you know, it's, it's, 
Right. I mean, rules rules are just made broken. But there are there there are better ways to do this. You know, it's it's um if you if you're a real nerd like me, um, you might follow the the race between human chess players and computers, which has uh, now been lost. Uh, the computers have won, and it's uh, just a short time till Skynet becomes self-aware and we're all destroyed. But one of the ways that human beings try to defeat computers is they try to overcome the vast library that uh, computers have at their disposal of all of their chess talking points. You try and um, introduce new elements. And that's essentially what's happened in debates, right? I mean, when you and I used to prepare for your debates, what's the, what's the go-to move? Whatever question has been presented to you by a moderator or by a town hall participant, you pivot away from it to the thing you want to talk about that aligns with your message. Well, that's not particularly productive for anybody. And, you know, it doesn't measure a useful governing skill. I'd much rather at the presidential level uh, have a, have an approach where uh, the, the candidates are given scenarios days in advance that they work up with their teams, with their staffs, the way that you really would um, in the White House, and then come and present your proposed approach to the American people and have a back and forth. Or I'd rather see a negotiation where the two sides try and hammer out a tax bill together in the course of about an hour. And you can see how each side thinks and what they value and what they're willing to give up uh, and what they would stick with. Or what about a, um, a war room exercise where there is a foreign policy crisis and you assemble uh, your military leadership that you would uh, put in place if you were to become president. And you see how the candidate, you could see how Kamala Harris and debuting in, in, in a potential future presidency role. What kinds of questions does she ask? How does she think? What does she value? What's most important to her in terms of um, uh, alliances or um, proportional response? So anyway, the point is that with sufficient creativity, um, there are many different ways that we could do this. Uh, and I just think that we've been sort of limited by our lack of imagination and the inertia of the way we've done it for a long time. Well, you know, you're a very persuasive guy. And here's what you have persuaded me to. You have persuaded me that uh, the current format of debates doesn't work. It doesn't work in primaries. It doesn't work on the presidential level. It doesn't, it simply doesn't work. But you didn't have to do much persuading because I was as uh, distressed about the general uh, progress or process of these debates as anybody else. But you also convinced me that putting, putting folks uh, out there in some bipartisan way or nonpartisan way uh, for the people of this country to take a good look at, because remember, most people aren't, don't live in New Hampshire where we get to actually meet people. For most people, it's just uh, pictures and tarmac and, and attack ads, but putting it out, and, but there needs to be some way that the candidates can, can show who they are, how they think, uh, and 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 how they perform. So you've convinced me or persuaded me that 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 my sense that the debates as they currently are aren't working, uh, at least to any real impact, is accurate. But that they're an important function. But look, let's take a little break. It's off the record with Pat Wilkinson and Paul Hose, produced 
5WKXL in Concord, New Hampshire. We're podcasting on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We'll be back after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hayes and Matt Robinson, produced by WKXL and Carpenter, New Hampshire. We're podcasting on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, it's Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, we're each other's guests. We're going back and forth in this edition of Sprint Toward the Election Day because we're each other's best guest. Matt Robeson. Matt Robeson, I have a question for you. What, what do we make? What do we make of the recent polling surge for Biden? All of a sudden, there are polls that are telling us that his numbers are going through the proverbial roof. Now, look, I, I know that you, you, you've written an article for Alternet, um, and it may be out there for our uh, listeners to read. And I know our listeners are readers. Matt is uh, one of the great contributors to uh, the Alternet. Um, and, and it's, um, and, and you say it's okay for Democrats to feel good. I have this nagging democratic anxiety. It's eating away at my soul. It's keeping me up at night. It's the agita of the Democrat who has seen defeat snatched from the jaws of victory too many times by complacency, by Democrats deciding, oh, it's Tuesday, but, you know, I think I'll just stay home. I really, it's raining. It's cold. I just, I won't, I don't need to go out because our guys are ahead. And, and I, now I, I don't want to stereotype my Democratic colleagues, but, but we all know about the dangers of Democratic complacency. So are these numbers real? Are they phony? Are they ginned up? Is it a plot by Republicans to make Democrats complacent? What's what's going on? Look, I think it's possible to feel two things, to think two things at the same time here, and both can be true. I think the recent results, and we're talking about national polling margins in favor of Biden, both 14 points, 16 points in reputable polls, and some fairly strong recent polls in the last week in key swing states. It's possible to feel good about those and also to take them with a big hunk of salt. One thing that we know um, based on uh, uh, research on, on public opinion is that big news events, and we've had plenty of them in the last week, uh, Trump's COVID diagnosis, the first presidential debate, Melania Trump saying that uh, she hates Christmas, um, Trump's taxes, big news events like that can make members of one party more likely to respond to polls. And that can introduce a temporary bias. It can skew the results. And that could very well be happening right now in the wake of all of this stuff going on. And, you know, it, that doesn't have to be much to account for the recent results. If you look outside the individual polls and you look at polling averages, which are a much more uh, accurate way to think about where the race stands, you know, Biden's margin has actually increased only two or three points. And if you look at the swing states 
alone, it's really much more of a point. So that's why Democratic operatives, the insiders, certainly do feel good about the consistency of Biden's polling leads up to now. And we heard from John Anzalone, the lead pollster for Joe Biden, uh, a couple of weeks ago on this show, that that is one of the key features that he's looking at. We heard the same thing from Josh Warren at Priorities USA uh, last week. So consistency, good. The margins are, are, are certainly good. But no one should be too fussed about some of these recent surges. Um, I, I think that it, it's entirely likely that they're due to um, quirky polling factors. And uh, yeah, no one should allow complacency to set in just on the basis of polls. Well, uh, let you know, here's hoping from your lips to God's ears that Democrats don't get complacent over the polls. I, I am betting that Democratic insiders, that the people who are helping to run campaigns are seeing things a lot differently than the public polling. I never know, you know, when I hear all these public polls, I rarely think to myself, oh boy, that's it, game over, we don't have anything to worry about. Because I just, I just have never found them particularly reliable. I've not, I mean, they, because it can change so quickly. I mean, I, 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 remember, <laughs> I remember the 2016 election when people didn't pick up on certain things that were going on. I remember um, the New Hampshire primary uh, for Obama in 2008, when uh, all the polls said he had a lock on it, and in the end it was Hillary. So, I mean, polling can change. Polling can change overnight, um, and you never know what surprises October might bring. So, so I guess the the other question is, let's 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 um, without relying over much on the polls, can Trump actually win? Is there a path for him? Uh, is there a way for him uh, to win the uh, popular vote, to win the electoral votes, to do this without simply stealing the election? And of course, uh, I saw most recently, it, it, it was suggested in the Atlantic, but I also saw it uh, some reports today that the Republicans are now actively planning to try to appoint their own electors who under the Constitution may have the power to vote for whomever they want. And if Republican-controlled legislators who have the power appoint their own electors and go for Trump, we are in a constitutional crisis of unimaginable proportions in which uh, the Republicans have managed to steal the election for President Trump. So, so, so what do you think? Can he actually, can he win fair and square? And if not, um, what do you think about what's going on with uh, attempts to, to, to use nefarious dirty tricks, maybe constitutionally allowed nefarious dirty tricks to win the election? That's a really good way to frame that question, right? That kind of two-part of can he do it without vote suppression um, and can he do it with vote suppression? My suspicion is that the answer to the first question is yes, possibly. The answer to the second question is yes, definitely, 
especially if the two things work together. So what I mean is right now, uh, here's a surprising statistic for people. If you look at just the top battleground states, and you can go to a website like Real Clear Politics if you, if you want to check this out for yourself, it, it, and you look at the average gap between Biden and Trump today, it's 4.7 points. At the same exact date prior to the election four years ago, the gap was 4.8 points for Clinton. So it was virtually the same. Now, Biden is in a much stronger position than Clinton in many ways. We've talked about consistency. We haven't touched on the fact that in many polls, he's above 50%, which is a key benchmark. So he's clearly doing better. But the fact remains that if you start to think about the fact that uh, we've, we may be seeing some, some blips in polling uh, over the last week. Um, and so the margin a week ago was only 3.7 points. Then you start to get into a range where, yes, there could be polling errors. As Harry Enten of CNN, their polling uh, guru put it, you know, it, it's likely that when you're up four or five points, you're going to win. But it's not unforeseen. It, 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 it's not like it hasn't happened before that there have been polling errors of as much as five points. So that's the answer to your first question. Yes, it could happen even without skullduggery. But we also know that there's plenty of skullduggery going on, right? Um, you know, and we're beginning to see long lines, removal of ballot drop-off locations. Uh, Republicans have been released from a 40-year-old legal consent decree that prevented them from doing things like uh, trying to discourage African-Americans from voting through targeted mailings, warning them that there are penalties for violating election laws or posting armed off-duty law enforcement officers at the polls to try and intimidate voters. Um, they are now allowed legally to do those things again. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the answer to both is unfortunately, yes, there are pathways for Trump to win. Yes, Biden is in a strong position. Yes, he's in a stronger position than Clinton was four years ago. But there's, uh, there's still a fair amount of work to be done. And there's some real uncertainty ahead. Well, uh, you know, I'm just hoping that uh, the steady state of the race continues because the steady, one of the things that our recent guest, John Anzalone, top Democratic pollster, told us was that uh, the steady state has been pretty steady for a steady time. I mean, he, he was talking about since the beginning of the year, things have been steadily going uh, the Biden way. And certainly uh, recent developments uh, do not suggest uh, a, a, a favorable swing towards Trump. But le let's talk about something else. And that is, let's go inside some of the campaigns. 538 released its house forecast this week. And it, and it, and it showed pretty overwhelming that Dems have a 90% chance to hold the house the U.S. House and even pick up seats. Now, that is, a, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. I mean, what do you remember, Matt, about this time in, in campaigns? And I'll weigh in also, but what do you remember? Here we are about three weeks plus out from a campaign. If you're in a swing state, 
uh, what are you seeing? What are your people telling you? What are you telling your candidate? And then I'll chime in with, with, what, I, with what my experience was. All right, so I'll give the staff a perspective. You'll give the candidate perspective, right? Right. Okay. All right. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because you were, um, just to point out for our listeners, in a swing district, in a swing state, in, the, in, the, in 2008, in a tightly contested presidential election, uh, where you have, were a first-term member of Congress running for re-election. So that is the exact position that a lot of these majority-making members of the House are in. So I, I, I want to hear your, your take on this. I, mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll briefly note that from, from a campaign management perspective, what are you doing at this point? Your TV is up, if you can afford any, in most congressional races, uh, you can. You're, you're probably putting a couple million uh, on TV. Um, and you're probably concentrating it in the final six weeks. So you've probably been up on TV uh, for a couple weeks now. Um, and you're, you're probably going to pick up your pace a little bit in the final three or four weeks. Uh, you probably shot most of your ads at this point. Um, you may be able to put, you know, two, three, maybe even four ads uh, on in a typical uh, house race budget. Your mail is also planned, but it's usually probably not hit quite yet. It, it, it will probably go out to mailboxes in the next week or two. Um, you know, you're shifting from a focus on fundraising to uh, doing in-person appearances every day. There is some political science research that shows that uh, in-person appearances actually do matter. Um, and so you're, you're, you're shifting uh, to that kind of field and get out the vote mode. And speaking of get out the vote, um, you, are, you are deep in refining your get out the vote plans, uh, what you're going to be doing in the 72 hours prior to election day, what you're going to be doing on election day itself. Although, of course, in many states this year, that equation is totally scrambled by uh, high volumes of vote by mail. The only other thing I'll mention, because it's relevant to this cycle, is that a relatively newish feature of campaigns at this stage is that it is political malpractice not to anticipate uh, election monitoring and a potential recount. So if you're anticipating any type of a close race, you are talking to your legal team, and you probably have been for a month or two. You're making sure that you have a, a team of volunteer lawyers ready to go to monitor what's happening at polling locations on election day, and then to, to be well-versed in the recount procedures of your state so that you can uh, engage and make sure that all the votes are counted after election day. All right, I'll stop there. Let me turn the question back to you. Take yourself back in your mind, candidate and uh, first-term Congressman Paul Hodes is 2008. Um, what is going on for you as a candidate right now if you're in one of these close swing races? So that's going to tease us to the next segment because this is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL and Carford. We're podcasting on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back, and I'm going to answer your questions. What's going through my head in 2008 as a congressman when we return? Don't go away, folks.
We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hosen, that Robeson produced by WKXL in Concord, near a podcast by Google Stitcher and iTunes. And before the break, Matt Robeson wanted to know what was going through my brain when I ran for re-election in 2008 with three weeks to go before election. Where was I? What was I thinking? What was I doing? Well, it's an interesting question because the novelty, um, if, you've, if you've won a race uh, for the U.S. Congress, uh, it's a pretty exciting thing and, and, and it's novel. And now with a term uh, under my belt and three weeks to go before the election, um, there are a lot of competing, uh, there's a lot of competition for my time. Um, you know, I had, I had pretty good campaign management, which was helping me decide where to go and what to do. Uh, I, instead of spending huge amounts of time uh, fundraising, I'm merely spending horrendous amounts of time fundraising. It's, 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 it's a little bit less on the fundraising and a little bit more on some other things. Now, in 2008, of course, there was no COVID pandemic, so that public appearances and rallies were increasingly important. We were out there giving stirring speeches to motivate people to get out the vote and speak to others to get out the vote. We were doing all kinds of in-person events from visiting diners to the fairs in the fall. Remember, in New Hampshire, it's usually fair season in the fall. So there's lots of opportunities in a normal campaign season for public appearances, and those are important. We're probably still um, working on high-power endorsements, and there are phone political phone calls uh, to be made. But uh, it's, it's a shifting uh, towards uh, personal appearances. Now, it's really hard for me to imagine, although uh, I did just come through a state Senate primary uh, that was a virtual primary, it's hard to imagine uh, everything that's going through the candidates' minds these days because with three weeks to go now, there's a lot of virtual campaigning going on, and I'm seeing pictures of candidates out there in masks, but there are no big rallies. Democrats aren't holding holding uh, big rallies. So uh, this is a battle that's going to be won uh, digitally, by mail, uh, and on and on television to a greater degree, certainly this year, than um, in 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 past years. But there's also, you know, there's both adrenaline and exhaustion. Because if you're a repeat member of Congress, you've been working at your job, traveling back and forth twice a week because you don't stay in Washington. Uh, You've got all the work that's going on in Congress. And when I was in Congress, Democrats actually worked, unlike the Republican schedule, which is pretty light. Democrats kept a, a real schedule of work. Um, with a lot of legislation that was passed. So uh, it was, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was real work. And then um, you've got campaigning. But it's campaign season. You're, you know, uh, not focused on, on the work so much, but still you've 
you've been campaigning hard and working hard and you're kind of exhausted. It's, uh, it's both exhilarating and exhausting and it's an emotional roller coaster because especially in a swing state like New Hampshire, uh, the voters are, are finicky. You know, I mean, there's no guarantee in a swing state that just because they loved you two years ago, they're going to like you again. And, and they don't really know you very well uh, because you've only been there for a term. So, so, you know, you just don't know. And we're seeing some of that play out right now in New Hampshire, where in the first congressional district, Chris Pappas, who's done a, a, a very good job as a, as a first-term member of Congress, looks to be in a fairly tight race with Republican challenger Matt Mowers in a district that has always been the more conservative of the two uh, districts in New Hampshire. Uh, so just because he was elected once, just because it looks like Joe Biden is ahead is no guarantee in a local race like uh, for Congress that there's any guarantee. So, you know, I mean, if you love your work and you want to do uh, good things for people and you, you want to keep on doing it, um, it is a time of, of sleepless nights and uh, very early mornings. My, one of my recollections is, you know, waking up at four in the morning to go out to factories and, and meet people and shake hands and say hello. And early mornings and very, very late nights uh, because uh, <laughs> you can always sleep when it's over. Um, there aren't enough hours in the day to do everything that needs to be done between uh, the meetings, the appearances, the fundraising, um, the media appearances, which are ramping up because in the last few weeks, uh, everybody wants to talk to you. So it's a, a heady and exhausting time is what I'll say. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a, probably about as good a, a thumbnail as, uh, you can hear about uh, what the experience is, is like, um, you know, and I, I, I think it kind of all comes at a, at a really interesting time. I mean, this is the most, I, I would say that this is the most uh, cross currents I've ever seen in the final four weeks of a campaign. Um, I mean, just in the news events that we saw in the last week uh, around president Trump, um, so, I mean, this, this strikes me as uh, an election cycle unlike any other, where there's more uncertainty in the air. And uh, I imagine that the folks who are on campaigns and who are candidates are probably pulling their hair out right now, um, trying to cover what is uh, all of a very shifting set of bases. But so let me let me just pick up on one thing you talked about in terms of the cross currents, and I I, I just want to uh, I'll shift for a moment to a an event which uh, is breaking recently breaking news in this year in this campaign cycle one of the cross currents uh, is about the sanctity uh, and safety of our elections and not just from COVID. There has been a lot of discussion about whether or not there's gonna be such intimidation at the polls that it will affect the results. And we've just seen a report that 
the federal authorities arrested 13 people in connection with a plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan. Now, there's been violence associated with our politics before. I mean, uh, my dear colleague, Gabby Giffords, was shot. Um, so it's not completely unknown. But a plot by right-wing extremists to capture and kill a governor seems to raise the stakes pretty pretty high. Um, uh, President Trump has told his his followers to stand back and stand by, which they've taken apparently as a as a, as a go ahead. Uh, and are, are we in this campaign? Uh, are we facing some kind of armed insurrection at the polls or after? And how can candidates deal with that? How can anybody running for office deal with that possibility? Yeah, that's a chilling thought. And I have to confess that I am on the side of thinking that there is a high likelihood of violence. Um, if, if you just think about the formula on election day that we touched on briefly earlier of the fact that Republicans are now removed from that legal restriction on intimidation um, at the polls. Now, I, I mean, there, there, there are still there are still laws against intimidating voters. I want to be clear about that. But, um, you know, there are there are forms of intimidation that go right up to the line that include a heavy presence of off-duty law enforcement and sheriffs, moves that President Trump has explicitly promised that he is trying to make sure happen uh, in the last debate. And you put that on top of the tensions, um, especially between the African-American community and the law enforcement community that we saw in protests throughout the country um, over the summer. Um, and it does seem like, as you say, with the president of our country calling for armed groups to stand back and stand by, it does seem to be a pretty noxious brew um, that could have real consequences. I would actually be somewhat surprised if there was not a spillover into um, out and out violence um, at some polling locations on election day. Uh, now, maybe that's an overly cynical, skeptical view. And I'm frankly afraid to even say it out loud because I don't want to be part of the problem. I don't want voters to anticipate that there are going to be problems and feel intimidated from voting. Um, I'm just trying to approach with some clear-eyed realism some of what these pressures, many of which are Trump-caused, um, have led us to. So is there anything to do about it? Um, I, I guess there, there is, and I think that uh, Democrats are doing it. Um, they are uh, aggressively pursuing uh, uh, legal cases in many states to make sure that uh, polling locations are as accessible as possible, are open um, when needed to actively monitor uh, what's happening at polling locations. Um, and I think that there is going to be a very robust effort um, to respond quickly to uh, anything that happens. But I, anyway, I take the core of your point, which is that 
we really have reached an unprecedented point um, in uh, our election politics and election process. And I, I don't think we should just let it uh, go by without, without noting that this is really the, the first election uh, since the Civil War where there is an appreciable chance of out-and-out -out violence and of a post-election meltdown in our constitutional form of government. So I'm going to ask you a lightning round question. You have two minutes to answer this question. There oh has been a lot, there's been a lot of chatter about conspiracy theories about Trump's COVID diagnosis, the balcony scene, the White House cluster. Is any of it good for Trump? Does it work? And also, Pence laid out the best Republican case on COVID. Will it work? Does any of this um, help? All right. I'm going to, since I think you should get the last word in this episode, I'm going to answer in under 30 seconds. And I'm going to turn it back to you. I think the short answer is no. I think that any focus on COVID is generally bad. I think polls have confirmed that unless you are a highly partisan Republican, your view of the president's response to COVID is bad. You think that he has failed. You think that his leadership has been lacking. And so, um, yes, two thirds of voters do say in surveys that they partially blame China. So maybe some of that pivot uh, there uh, may blunt uh, matters a little bit, but no. Uh, in essence, the more Democrats talk about affordable health care and the president's failures on COVID politically, the more it benefits them. Back to you. What do you think? I think Trump is toast. I think Pence is a slime ball. And I think that they're going down. I think they failed so badly on COVID that nobody can escape it. I think we're beginning to see a cavalcade of Republican defection, including Carly Fiorina, former Republican presidential candidate, former CEO of Hewlett Packard, many in the military. I just think people see past the lies and they're increasingly desperate. So that's my last word. Let's Let's make it from my lips to God's ears. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, produced by WKXL. We're going to take a short break and be back to wrap up this week's edition of Off the Record After This. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes, produced by WJXL. We're podcasting on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your kids' listening pleasure. You can find us at nhtalkradio.com. Well, Matt Robeson, what a great guest you were. You are so smart, so articulate. You are just, man, oh, man. Man, I, I, I wish, like, if I was in Congress, I'd want you to be my chief of staff because you are the guy who really knows how to put it all together. I'm not sure that listeners can hear my blushing, but uh, just trust me, it's there. That was a shameless plug, but Robeson really is smart, you people. He writes for the alternate. He's got a blog called amoreperfectunionforum.com. He actually talks to people who know stuff. He says stuff that he's actually thought about, unlike lots of people, including me, and I just wing it. But Together, we make a pretty interesting and fun team. 
God, it's a crazy time in politics. But, you know, we're three weeks away, but we'll be back next week with more Off the Record to take another deep dive into the swirling waters of politics. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week, folks. So long.